and you reach into your wallet and you're going to pull out a 20 and it grabs the 100. The fight's on, amen. <laughs> Praise God. First Samuel chapter 15, if you have your Bible, I heard you had a wonderful revival uh, with Pastor Evangelist Bob Overson. We really thank God uh, uh, for that and uh, the attendance and I hear God just really met with you. Uh, some of you, God gave you a word, uh, read your mail. Wonderful when God reads your mail, amen. First Samuel chapter 15 this evening. Um, over the many years that I've pastored, I've become a student of human nature. And it uh, never ceases to amaze me the ability of the human heart to justify its desires or its decisions. It's like this incredible determination. We have desires. We make decisions. We choose in life, many times knowing that it's sinful, it's rebellious, and then we begin to build a theology that's acceptable to our conscience. It's like we have this built-in mechanism, this ability to assemble thoughts and build a theology to accommodate our sin. Years ago, I was in Manila, Philippines. Uh, we had the early days of our works in uh, the Philippines, and God was doing a great work there. And the church was just on fire. There was about 250 people. The thing was just throbbing. It was just ready to explode into another dimension. And I'm speaking with the pastor, and I can feel his spirit by his, his conversation. I was there preaching a revival. I'd been in and out of there a number of times, especially in the early days of the work in Manila. And I'm speaking with the pastor, and I can tell he's putting the brakes on this work. He's, he's slowing it down. And I asked him about this. I said, uh, you know, uh, why are you doing this? I can't really figure out what, what's in your mind. And he said, well, he said, I don't want this church to get too large because I would then be unable to turn it over to a local pastor. That sounded very spiritual. It sounded, it had the feelings of theology. But in truth, he wanted to come back to America. That was the real reason. And so he did not want um, this thing to grow and him feel a responsibility that he needed to stay there. And it wasn't too long till he was actually back in the United States. It had nothing to do with the local pastor. It had nothing to do with all that this theology. But you know, every one of us here have that ability. And I want to preach a message tonight on accommodating theology from 1 Samuel chapter 15, um, uh, verse 13. I want to read. We've, we've preached a number of sermons out of this portion of Scripture, so you're familiar with it. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What's then this I hear bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? 
Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. The rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the Amalekites, the sinners, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, I brought back Agag, the king of Amalekite, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And then so Samuel gives him this word. Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offering sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, um, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Samuel turned around to go away. Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. Samuel turned back and said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel, talking about God, will not lie nor relent. He's not going to change his mind, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, here's Saul speaking again, I've sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Father, tonight we come by the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray for insight. God, we pray you give this people truth. God, I pray you give them weapons of warfare that they might win the battles in their own heart, that they might be all you've called them to be. God, raise up. Keep a mighty people. Give us impact in the earth. May we turn our generation to God in Jesus' name. Amen. Accommodating theology. First of all tonight, you must understand that we are creatures of desire. This is the nature of the human heart. In other words, everyone here this evening, you have longings. You have cravings. Things that you want. Things you want to do. You have appetites. You yearn for things. You want to do things. You want to accomplish things. You want to have things come into your life. Everyone here has the capacity of desire, from the youngest to the eldest. Now, this may shift in priority over the years. It may be in one arena when you're small, and as time goes and years pass, some desires fade and others begin to take their place. When I was a boy, I loved to play basketball. 
We used to play. I, I first started playing basketball. I had a little old uh, a piece of wood nailed up against a tree and, and an old rim off of some kind of wheel and uh, had nails on it. And, and I'd play basketball, and the rim would fall down, and I'd have to poke it back up. I can remember playing in the snow. It was so cold, my fingers would crack open. Uh, I can remember playing in high school for hours and then on the way home stop and play till midnight in the alleys of East Chicago, Indiana. And, you know, that was like my life. It was my desire. I, I'd rather play than eat. Um, uh, didn't matter. Uh, that was a desire in me. But as the years come and go, pain in my knees. You know, people talk about losing a half step. I've lost about ten and a half steps. Amen. And so down inside of me, there's still a kind of a little desire there. But it's not like it was when I was 15 years old or 16 years old or 20 years old. There's desires in life. Some people desire an education, a career. You may desire a girlfriend. You may desire a wife. You desire marriage. Some people, they desire children or a family or a house or the first car. I remember the first car Connie and I bought. It's an Oldsmobile. 1956 Olds 88. Man, I tell you what. We got in that thing in Oregon, drove to San Francisco, drove from San Francisco to Illinois. I mean, I'd shine that thing, you know. Look at my truck out here now. I haven't washed it in months. Things change in life. But every one of us, um, we have desire. This has to do with excitement. We could talk about drugs. We could talk about alcohol. We could talk about power. We could talk about money or wealth or position. All of these. Uh, and one of the miraculous things is that when you get saved, uh, one of the miracles of a new heart is these desires begin to shift. Uh, and some of them may not disappear, but now there's an overriding desire, and that desire should be to please God. That's a mark of salvation. You desire ministry. You want to serve God. You desire to worship God. Now you want to give to God. You want to give your life to God. And that's because in your heart of hearts, um, where your desire rests, um, there's been a powerful shift in the heart. Um, you may desire to preach. Um, uh, you may desire to pastor. You may desire to minister. But now there's desires in you that were not there when you was out in the world. Our daughter, J. Rail, as long as I can remember, she desired to sing. Uh, as long as I remember when she was little, She'd sing in the shower. She'd sing in the house. She'd, we'd be in the car. She'd be singing. And this booming voice is, you know, rattling the windows. Up. As long as I can remember, that's been her desire. And the Bible speaks about man's life as an assembly of desires. In other words, um, it fully recognizes that desires are part of your life. Psalms 37, 4, the desires of thine heart. Ephesians 2, 3. Fulfilling the desires of thy flesh. Proverbs 10.24 Desires of the righteous. Psalm 78.29 For he gave them their own desires. James 4.2 Kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Deuteronomy says Whosoever the soul desires. The Bible speaks about desiring the office of a bishop. 
The Bible speaks about desiring a better country, talking about heaven. The Bible talks about desiring the gifts of the Spirit. But the truth is, you and I this evening are a complexity of desires. has to do with what you want to be, what you want to accomplish, what you want to own, where you want to go, how you want to live, where you want to spend eternity. And I want to tell you something tonight. And listen, you young men, if you're going to talk when I preach, I'm going to get you. I don't care if you're six foot ten. I won't put up with it. And so your desire better be to listen. Keep your trap shut. You got all day to talk. You can talk at home. If you just come to talk, stay home. No problem with me. Clear enough? Fair enough? I don't want to have to embarrass you. You don't want to be embarrassed. Okay. But I don't want you embarrassing me either. Praise God. Hallelujah. Well, glory to God. Amen. And so, inside of you and I, there are these desires that are crying out to be fulfilled. Your flesh cries out. It lusts, the Bible says. It longs. It has appetites that are ungodly. This is what I want to do. If I can do this, then my flesh will be fulfilled and I will enjoy life. Your mind this evening has desired. This is what I want to think about. This is what I allow my mind to dwell upon. This is what I enjoy thinking about. And we all have this. It's like our mind has its own opinion. And it partners with our flesh. This is one side of your spirit. The Bible says it can be split in two. This is a double-minded man. The Bible challenges us to be of a sound mind. Some people, you see, you're sitting here tonight, and human beings are complex. It's not that simple. We're not just one dimension. But we have flesh. We have mind. We have spirit. We have feelings and emotions. And all of these are crying out, to be satisfied, and they're all exerting their will and saying, I want this, I want this, I want to do that, I want to have that, I want to be like that, I'm determined. And so there's this war going on inside of you and I this evening. It's the feel-good generation. Passions, excitement, sensual. I just read an article out of Australia. And they have these tours in India. They call them misery tours. People pay $10,000 to go on a misery tour. Now, you've got to be pretty bored in life to go on a misery tour. Let me explain what I'm talking about. You know, all around the world, every, every nation, you know, they, they have uh, the, you know, their sights to see. I was speaking with Ronnie Wilkie. He's a trip. He's, he's a Scotchman. Uh, him and his wife, Jackie, they're coming in probably in January. I'm going to have him preach a service. I'll probably have to interpret his English. His brogue is so thick. It'll be, you've got to speak to him. It'll be a trip just talking to him. But anyway, he says, um, <clears throat> now what is that in Arizona that I'm always reading about? That big, um, that big, and I'm listening to him on the phone. He called me the other, just uh, when I got back Friday. He says, that big, big, what... He says, we got a joke about it. And, Scot- uh, you know, the Scotsmen are notoriously stingy. Scotsmen are notorious. I mean, 
Uh, they're known around the world as being uh, tight with their money. He says, oh yeah, it's the Grand Canyon. He said, we got a joke over here. You know how the Grand Canyon was built? A Scotsman lost his penny. And so when he comes, he said, Pastor, if you've got time, I'd like to go see that. Now, every nation in the world has those. But this misery tour is people who go to India, and they don't want to see that kind of stuff. They want this misery tour. And so what they do in India, they cremate the body publicly. Here's Grandma. And so you can go down. They have a tour. You can go down at 5 a.m. in the morning. You got your little Kodak moment. And you go down, and here they're burning Grandma. And you can smell the burning flesh. And it stench. The stench is unbelievable. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. They're burning. And you, can, you, can, you pay big money. And then after that, you can go to a leper colony where someone's flesh is falling off. And you can bandage a leper and you can smell the, the stench and, and see the horror of that. Then after that, uh, you can go to Mother Teresa's place um, uh, where, where the poor and there's lepers there and all kinds of stuff. Um, and all they're wanting is some kind of video experience or some kind of Kodak moment. And they call it a misery tour. They're wanting some kind of feeling. Uh, they want to, to have this impact upon their soul. And I'm thinking, you know, $10,000 for that. But there's a lot of people here. Your desires are going to take you on a misery tour if you don't bring them under the blood of Jesus. How many of you know our flesh will take us on a misery tour? You just play with sin long enough, I guarantee you'll be miserable. You'll stink. Sin makes you smell horrible. It stenches your spirit. It'll destroy you. And you can get weirded out. You can be driven until life becomes so boring that you've got to go on a misery tour. You've got to go to some place. And they got so upset with these people that because they just come in and they just wanted to smell the stench, um, uh, take a little photograph like they're doing, helping something, and a video, and then they can come back uh, uh, to Chicago or Phoenix um, and, and sit at the, uh, the, uh, uh, one of these coffee places and drink a latte and say, yeah, man, I was in India and I smelled the stench. When you're born again, your desires need to change. The Bible says desire the sincere milk of the Word of God. The Bible says a desire for prayer, a desire to worship, a desire to do right, a desire to serve, a desire to forgive, a desire for holiness. This is the miracle of salvation. But your desires tonight are a major influence on the kind of person you're going to be. Where you go, what you do, how you conduct yourself, how you speak, your testimony this evening is linked to your desire. And the devil knows this. So he'll build a strategy 
around your desire. I meant I taught in Sunday school. You ought to come to Sunday school, really help you. What temptation is all about. The first temptation in the garden. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable. That word means the root word to delight in. In other words, it wasn't repulsive. It wasn't disgusting. It looked desirable. In Malaysia, they have a fruit called durian. And I think Tom and Rose were over there. They remember durian. This fruit, they call it the king of fruits. And the reason they call it, and, and it's addictive, it's like salsa. It's addictive. I'm telling you, it's addictive. Most people don't believe me. But my great delight is trying to get the Americans to eat durian. You know why? This is how they describe it. Pardon me. It's like eating vanilla ice cream sitting on a open an outside toilet that hasn't been cleaned in about 10 years. The stench is incredible. I mean, it's nauseating. Well, let me tell you, this fruit in the garden wasn't like that. The Bible says it was desirable. And the devil knows uh, that when he tempts you with sin... Uh, what he does is he makes it desirable. Because this is how he builds his strategy. He targets your desires. It's something we want. He must enlist your appetites. He pressures. And he enlists your appetites that it may enlist your will. And the thought is, if I have this, this is going to make my life more exciting. I'll be happier. I'll be more fulfilled. This is what I always wanted. I mentioned in Sunday school, he offers the bait. That's what temptation is all about. And I'm laying a foundation. Just stick with me for a minute. Here is King Saul. He has a word from God. It's a direct word from God. He says, I'm going to give you victory in battle, but I don't want you to bring any of the spoils back. This is a direct word from God. He's gone to war. He's had total victory. And now the custom of the day was that these spoils now went to the victor. Something's going to happen. He has desire show up front and center in his life. He looks at these goods, there's sheep, there's oxen. They were the finest sheep and oxen. And now he has a choice to make. And he makes a decision out of his desire. And it's disobedience. It's sin. And the Bible says he took for himself what God said was evil. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? You see, we desire something, and God says, No, I don't want you to have that. How many of you here, you've had, you've had that battle? Let me see your hand. He says, I want that. And you know God don't want you to have it. You know it's not right. You know it's, it violates God's Word. You know it's sin. You know it's disobedient. You know it's rebellious. You know it's wicked. It's evil is what he called it. But now what you have, you want something. You desire this. 
You think, you begin to build your case um, that I want this, but you're saved. Now this is, I'm talking basically to saved people now. When I was a sinner, I wanted things and I didn't care. I wanted it. But when I got saved, there were things I wanted. Um, and if I was going to take that that I wanted and God said, I don't want you to have, I had to build a theology to accommodate my desire. This is the nature of the human heart or the personality. We have to justify what we were doing to ease our conscience or to build our case to support our decision. As a Christian, most of the time, this will have a religious flavor to it. The word theology simply means a system of religious belief. In other words, now... We have to build a theology to support our decision. You remember me making the statement? This man said, You can lie, and God by the Holy Spirit will take your lie and make it a righteous lie. Now, why would you build that kind of theology? Why would anybody build that kind of theology? You want to lie. Of course. Why else would you build that kind of theology? Because um, you want to lie. And so if you want to lie to someone, um, and you want to lie to people to manipulate them, you want to lie to people that you can control or get your will or your way, so now you have to build a theology to accommodate your sin. And every one of us here are guilty. And every one of us here are going to have to fight this battle in our mind. Because this is what excuses, uh, this is what explains to our conscience uh, why we have chosen sin. Let's look at King Saul for a moment. Now think of this. Here he is. He's king of the land. He has wealth. He has power. This man is not a pulper. He could have sheep and oxen by the train load. But he wants these sheep and these oxen. He's king. He's sovereign. He knows he's disobeyed God, but the moment he sees Samuel, what does he do? He went into this spiritual mode. Blessed are you of the Lord. Now here's a great lesson for you and I. Blessed are you of the Lord. Praise God. I'm doing His will. First thing's out of His mouth. You know, one of the things we can do to cover our desire is act spiritual and religious. I've seen people come, and I'm amazed they lifted their hands in the house of God. It's a wonder lightning didn't strike them. But we'll do that, every one of us. We'll come, and oh, man, I mean, we can put it on. And we act so... That's exactly what he's doing. He covers it by acting spiritual... Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Like no one can tell. I've seen people living in adultery lift their hands. That's what he's doing. That's exactly what he's doing. He's trying to cover his disobedience by religious terminology and action. 
these spiritual words, blessed are you of the Lord. When he meets, I perform the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel's not fooled. He said, if that's true, what's this I hear bleeding? See, he wants to deal in facts. So the second thing he does in verse 15, oh yeah, we spared the best sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Now he's created a theology to accommodate his desire. I'm not doing this for me, Samuel. I'm not doing this because I wanted those sheep and oxen. I'm doing this to sacrifice and please God. People do it all over the world. We're not careful. That's what communion is. That's what the whole religious realm is. That's what the whole idea, many times I've seen it around the world, is we put on some kind of religious action. We count the rosary. We can rattle the beads. And it doesn't ever touch our heart. It means nothing. We can do all kinds of things. And he says, you know what? I'm doing this for God. I had a guy, one time I was talking to this guy. And he says, yeah, Pastor. He said, I just wanted to let you know. I uh, says, uh, I'm not paying my tithe anymore. I says, oh, yeah, why? He says, well, I, I want to buy this new car. But he says, you know what? I'm going to pick up converts with this car. Bring them to church. I said, you are? Well, that, you know, that's interesting. And so what he's done, really, he wants a new car. He can't see how he can afford it and be faithful with his tithes. So he's going to buy this new car, but he's given a theology to accommodate his conscience. I'm going to use this for God. Hallelujah. I'm going to buy me a new bins, and I'm going to fill it full of new converts um, from the south side and bring them to the door. Every one of us here build our theology. I've asked guys before, hanging around some new convert girl, you know, and it, you know, they, I won't say that, never mind. And so they're hanging around, you know, some new convert girl. I'm telling her about the things of God, Pastor. I'll tell you what, man. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I said, well, it's interesting you never have your Bible when I, you must have a good memory. You quote them, quote me four or five scriptures out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But see, we want to cover, we make a decision out of our desire. We want that. We are determined to have that. And so now we have to build some kind of theology that will support our desire. And that's what Saul is doing. He's saying, I did this for God. He puts a twist on it. We're going to use this to worship God. The truth is, the longer you're saved, if you're not careful, you'll become more of an expert at doing this. The third thing he does is he uses other people's actions to excuse his own sin. He said in verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Verse 21, But the people took of the plunder of the sheep and oxen Verse 24, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. 
In other words, what he's saying now, Samuel, if it hadn't been for other people, I wouldn't be acting this way. Almost always when you find adultery in the church, they accommodate it with the theology. Pastor, if you knew my husband, if you knew my wife, that's why I'm doing this. It's like they desired, and now that desire to live with themselves, they have to build a theology to accommodate it and excuses. If you knew how I was treated, how many times have I talked to people about sin and they said, Pastor, if you'd known what has happened to me, if you knew what I'd been through, if you knew what others were doing to me, how I was treated in my life and my circumstances and someone in church or someone, and it goes on and on and on. But you notice in this text, God nor Samuel didn't buy any of it. Listen to me. I want to close with a thought. Because here's the horror of it. When you enter into that kind of thinking... Finally, you'll lose the ability to judge sin. Listen to me carefully. Listen to me carefully. Issues of right and wrong now become clouded. You'll lose clarity of sin. You'll lose that sharp understanding of disobedience and rebellion against God. You'll have this casual attitude towards sin because your conscience will begin to break down. What at one time was horrible to you now will be no big deal. Your sin will become normal. Your rebellion will become a way of life and totally acceptable. And churches all over America are filled with it. Samuel, get the feeling of this and I'm going to close shortly. He's outraged. He can't believe what he's hearing. He pronounces judgment on Saul. He says, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. In other words, he says, Saul, you push God over the edge. He's going to rip everything from you. You're going to lose it all. You're finished, Saul. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Disobedience. It is as iniquity. And it's horrible. Don't you get it, Saul? It's finished for you. It's over. And Saul, he says, Yeah, okay, I've sinned. Let's go worship God. Why are you so worked up, Samuel? I'm sorry. It's not that big a deal. Let's go, just, you know, a little prayer will fix it all up. He can't see it. He's lost the ability to see the horror of his own sin. Samuel again comes back. He says, basically, Saul, you're crazy. A little worship isn't going to fix this problem. I'm out of here. And he grabs Samuel's garment and it rips. And again he turns around. And he said, what you just done to my garment, God has done to you. 
It's ripped from you. Don't you get it, Saul? And he still doesn't get it. So, yeah. Now honor me before the people. Saul, there's not going to be any people. You're finished. Listen to what finally has to happen. Finally, Samuel has to judge what Saul should have. What does he do? Saul has lost this strength to judge sin. This is the horror of life. He's lost the courage. He's broken down internally. He's broken down in character. His conscience has dissolved so bad that not only is sin all confusing and it's become casual and acceptable, but now he can't judge it. Remember he said, I don't want you to bring back any of the Amalekites. The reason for that was they were perverts. And God did not want these perverts. They were, they were homosexuals. And God says, I don't want them infecting the people of God. And here is a gag. Enough to make you gag. And God said, I want you to slay this man. And you can read it. I read it. And he couldn't do it. He could not judge sin. And Samuel says, give me your sword. And Saul, give him his sword. And he goes over and he hacks this man to pieces. And the story and the truth for you and I is that Saul had come to the place that he no longer had the ability to judge sin. Listen to me. He began to bring things home with him that God said, I want you to judge. That's what happens when you enter into accommodating theology. He brought home Agag. God said, you should have judged him. He brought home spoils. I want to, let me ask you, what do you bring home from school? What do you bring home from work? What do you bring home from the world? What's living in your house that God said you ought to have judged it a long time ago? You've lost the courage to judge it. Does Agag feel uncomfortable around you? See, Agag, he feels comfortable around Saul because he knows he can't judge him. The sinners feel comfortable, and I'm not talking about hacking sinners to pieces. But I'm talking about having something in your spirit that unrighteousness doesn't feel comfortable around you. I'm talking about something in your spirit that they won't strip off naked around you. I'm talking about something in your spirit that they won't play. I'll tell you some of this music today, and I don't listen to it, but some of the stuff I'm reading, it is foul. They're just an article. I read this. I mean, it is foul. Some white guy that's rapping. I forget his his his, his street name. God, it is sick. It it was it was porno in in a magazine in Time magazine. Verbal porno. I mean to think. I mean, and I can't imagine. Do you bring that home? Does that feel comfortable around you? It's because you've broken down inside. What do you bring home? What's living in your house? What's become attracted to you? Because you won't judge it. The unclean, the pervert, the backslider. 
the one they, they spew their rap and they spew it all over you because they do it with ease because there's no conviction in your heart. Samuel had to judge what Saul should have judged. And you know how Saul ended up? Those of you that aren't real familiar with the Bible, you know how he ended up? He become insane. He become mentally insane and basically took his own life. Because when you accommodate sin, beloved, it may go on for a season and a time, but eventually you'll lose the ability to even see sin clearly and judge it. You don't want to be in that place. You don't want to be in that place. Accommodating theology. You can commit adultery and build your case. You can rebel against God. Build your case. You can build it with religion. You can build it in your own mind. You can go out, come in, go out, come in here, sing the songs, go out, live like hell and build your case. I want to tell you, you won't do it without a price. You can get out of ministry when you know God wants you in ministry. And you can build your case. You can back away and Say, I'm not going to witness and build your case. And you can go on and on and on and on. And every one of us here, if we're not careful, we become professors at building our accommodating theology to excuse and support our sin. But I want to tell you, it's not without a price. You'll break down inside. And one day sin will run over you like you wasn't even there. Would you bow your head with me this evening?